0: Good evening and welcome to NTD News, I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. Two more hostages released from the Hamas terrorist group, who are they? And Israel enters Gaza and says it killed or captured over 1,000 terrorists. The U.S. sending more forces to the Middle East, what's behind the move and what President Biden says about negotiating the release of hostages. And in the Georgia Rico case, the former president breaks his silence. He responds to co-defendant Sidney Powell's guilty plea. Senator Bob Menendez returning to New York for his second arraignment. New charges accusing him of acting as a foreign agent for Egypt. And 20 days and counting without a Speaker of the House. Now nine Republicans with various roles in the party are jumping in the race to fill the slot. The Hamas terrorist group has released two more hostages. The announcement came after Israeli forces conducted overnight ground operations in the Gaza Strip. NTD's Jason Perry has the latest.
1: On Monday, the Hamas terrorist group released two more hostages, both Israeli citizens, 80-year-old Nurit Cooper and 85-year-old Yocheved Lifshitz. A Hamas spokesman said they released the two women for humanitarian and health reasons. However, both of their husbands remain in captivity. Meanwhile, the Israeli military remains focused on freeing the rest of the hostages. On Sunday, Israeli forces conducted limited ground operations in Gaza and not only killed Hamas terrorists but also gathered intelligence. One Israeli soldier was killed in the operation.
2: WE LOCATED OVER 1,000 BODIES AND CAPTIVES, TERRORISTS WE ARE HOLDING ON TO. I REPEAT, WE GOT OVER 1,000 BODIES AND CAPTIVES. ALL OF THEM ARE HAMAS MEMBERS THAT ARE INTERROGATED, IDENTIFIED, CLASSIFIED TOGETHER WITH OUR INTELLIGENCE EFFORTS REGARDING THE MISSING AND HOSTAGES.
1: Through this intelligence gathering process, Israel updated the total number of hostages taken by Hamas to 222, now 220 after the latest hostages were released. Israeli President Isaac Herzog, in an exclusive interview on Sky News, also shared some alarming intelligence discovered on the body of a Hamas terrorist.
3: This is material which was found on the body of one of those sadistic villains. It's al-Qaeda material official Al-Qaeda material, and in this material there were instructions how to
1: produce chemical weapons. If confirmed, this would be a clear violation of the Geneva Convention and international law, which strictly forbid the use of chemical weapons. As of Monday, over 1,400 Israelis have been killed, mostly civilians who were killed by Hamas terrorists while attending a music festival. And according to the Hamas-run health ministry, more than 4,600 Gazans have been killed. Meanwhile, Gaza's other border is also active, with trucks carrying humanitarian aid. As of Monday, at least three humanitarian aid convoys entered Gaza through the Rafah crossing from Egypt to deliver aid to the Palestinian people. Also in regards to the humanitarian situation, Israel's president said that Israel is only responsible for 7 percent of the water in Gaza, and he said there is fuel for humanitarian needs under the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. Jason Perry, NTD News.
0: President Biden speaking out about hostage negotiations with Hamas. That says the U.S. is deploying more forces to prevent the war from widening. Joining us now live is NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao. Good evening, Iris. What did the president say today about the hostage situation?
4: Good evening to you, Tiff. So at an event this afternoon, a reporter asked President Biden if he would support a a ceasefire in exchange for the release of hostages. And here is what President Biden said. Watch.
1: Why do you get we should have a ceasefire, Not a ceasefire, we should
3: have
5: those hostages released and then we can talk.
4: So we did hear President Biden having to correct himself a little bit here, but the idea is that President Biden called on Hamas to release the hostages before entertaining the prospect of any talks regarding a ceasefire. We also heard the White House today calling on the public to not trust Hamas' words when it comes to reports that they would release hostages in exchange for a ceasefire. Here's what White House National Security Spokesperson John Kirby told us this afternoon. Watch.
6: We've got to take anything that Hamas says with a huge grain of salt. We don't take anything that they say at face value. Here's an idea, and it's just an idea I'll throw out there. They could release them all now. Just take, just let them go now. Because these people didn't do anything wrong. They're just innocent civilians being caught up in this conflict. Let them go now. Now, I recognize that's not going to happen, which is why we're going to keep working with our partners in the region to do what we can to get them released.
4: Kirby said that he wouldn't go into any details regarding any negotiations when it comes to the hostage situation because he says that would risk the opportunities of getting more of them out. But Kirby did say today that the White House continues to believe that among the 10 Americans who are still missing, they believe that there are about a handful of them who are being, host- being taken hostage by Hamas. Tiff.
0: And Iris, in addition to the hostage situation, what is the administration doing to strengthen our posture in the Middle East, especially after a spate of recent drone and rocket attacks on American troops there? So regarding
4: these recent attacks, the White House today specifically called out Iran, saying it saying it has been supporting the groups behind these attacks and in some cases it has proactively facilitated these attacks. Meanwhile, in response, the White House says President Biden has directed the Department of Defense to strengthen U.S. posture in that region, including by redirecting a U.S. carrier strike group, the Eisenhower Strike Group, Strike Group to, directly to the Middle East instead of the Eastern Mediterranean. And in in addition is also sending more air defense capabilities to US air bases in the region and of course the goal of all these moves is to deter any countries in that region from trying to get involved
0: and widen this war iris thank you for that update the New York Times is now admitting error in its coverage of the explosion at a hospital in Gaza the New York Times initially reported that Israel was behind the hospital explosion. The paper is now correcting that claim. The Times said it relied too heavily on reports from the Hamas terrorist group, but didn't make that clear enough. It says giving the claim prominence in a headline, news alert, and on social media gave a false impression. The Times wasn't the only outlet making this mistake. Various papers blamed Israel for the explosion in news alerts, and many backtracked their reports later. More backlash against Harvard over student support for Palestine, a former governor is now withdrawing from fellowships at the university. Former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan is not interested into Harvard fellowships anymore. Hogan condemned what he calls Harvard's failure to immediately and forcefully denounce anti-Semitic vitriol. That's over a letter signed by over 30 student groups. The students blamed Israel for the terrorist attacks, which killed more than a thousand civilians. Hogan says he can't support dangerous anti-Semitism allegedly taking place at Harvard. Former President Trump claims Sidney Powell was, quote, never his attorney. This comes three days after Powell pleaded guilty in the Georgia Rico case. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has more.
5: Former President Trump broke his silence on Sunday with a tacit response to attorney Sidney Powell's guilty plea last week. He said in a social media post that Ms. Powell was not my attorney and never was. Guilty. Powell pleaded guilty on October 19 to six misdemeanor charges in the Georgia-RICO case brought by District Attorney Fonnie Willis against 19 defendants, including Trump. She admitted to six counts of conspiring to intentionally interfere with the performance of election duties. Trump said in his post that Powell was one of millions and millions of people who thought, and in ever-increasing numbers still think, correctly, that the 2020 presidential election was rigged and stolen. But some question the former president's claim that Powell was never his attorney. On November 19, 2020, Powell, flanked by a team of Trump's attorneys, said this about the election. President Trump won by a landslide. We are going to prove it. And we are gonna reclaim the United States of America for the people who vote for freedom. Just four days before that, on November 14, 2020, Trump said in a then-Twitter post that attorney Rudy Giuliani was spearheading a team to fight for free and fair elections. He then named the members of Giuliani's team, which included Sidney Powell. But a week later, Trump's 2020 campaign legal team announced that Powell was not a member of the team. In a statement on November 22, 2020, the team's leader Giuliani and team member Jenna Ellis said Powell was practicing law on her own and that she is also not a lawyer for the president in his personal capacity. Powell reportedly had made bold statements about the voting process without evidence, including strong claims of ballot tampering. Trump's 2020 campaign told the Washington Post at the time that she was too crazy even for the president. As her Georgia trial approached, Powell distanced herself from Trump. Her attorney said in court filings that she did not represent President Trump or the Trump campaign because she never signed an engagement agreement to be their attorney.
0: Senator Bob Menendez maintaining his innocence. He had a second arraignment today in connection to his conspiracy and bribery charges. The senator returned to a Manhattan court to face a superseding indictment, which accuses him of acting as a foreign agent for Egypt. He pleaded not guilty. Federal prosecutors on October 12th accused the New Jersey Democrat of acting on behalf of Egyptian military and intelligence officials from 2018 to 2022. At the time, Menendez said piling new charge upon new charge does not make the allegations true. He has refused to step down since the first indictment against him was announced in September. The senator, his wife and three businessmen are accused of corruption involving bribery, conspiracy and receiving hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash and gold bars. House Republicans have gone back to the drawing board today for the third time, meeting to select a new speaker nominee. This after Congressman Jim Jordan failed to get enough support to secure the gavel last week. NTD's Melina Wisecup has updates for us.
7: House Republicans are headed back behind closed doors in a third attempt to choose a nominee that could have a chance at taking the speaker's gavel. They'll be meeting tonight at 6:30 for that candidate forum where nine candidates will be laying out their vision for the future of the House of Representatives. Tomorrow they're going to hold an internal vote to select their nominee, and what we're going to be looking for for tomorrow's vote is how that nominee emerges because we know back when Steve Scalise won the nomination and Jim Jordan, they fell far short of the votes they would have needed to secure the gavel on the House floor so we'll be looking to see how this result plays out tomorrow morning as an indicator as to whether or not Republicans have been able to work out some of those fissures that are still in the Republican Party. Now as for the candidates themselves. The majority of these candidates are not even among the ranks of leadership. The candidate who has the highest ranking position in leadership is Tom Emmer. He's currently the Republican whip, and he's not necessarily a household name, but he did win the endorsement of former Speaker Kevin McCarthy. He did try to win over former President Trump's support in a phone call, although Trump withheld his endorsement for Emmer or any other candidate in this race. But the key thing to note about Emmer here is that he may have a difficult time securing votes from the most conservative members in the party, particularly because he supports legislation that they aren't necessarily willing to support, things such as Ukraine aid, same-sex marriage. He also supported the continuing resolution that actually got McCarthy ousted in the first place, so he may have some trouble with that conservative wing of the party. Others who are among the ranks of leadership but are lesser known are Mike Johnson, who's the vice chair of the Republican Conference, and Kevin Hearn, who's the chairman of the Republican Study Committee. Now, of those members who are not among the ranks of leadership. These are members such as Jack Birdman or Pete Sessions, ones that you really don't hear their name very often, but a key candidate I want to mention here is Byron Donalds. He makes very frequent media appearances. He's very outspoken. He also has friends across the Republican spectrum with moderates, with conservatives. He also was actually one of the 20 members who originally opposed McCarthy back in January and forced him to make concessions at that time, so we'll definitely be looking to see how both Donald and Emmer are faring after tonight's candidate forum as well as tomorrow morning when they do hold that internal vote for the nomination. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Wisecup, NTD News.
0: Will the GOP be able to unify over a House speaker? To dive deeper into the political shuffling and how lawmakers could rise above it, we have Republican Representative Mike Flood from Nebraska. Congressman Mike Flett, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show.
8: Thanks for having me.
0: Now, the House has been without a speaker for three weeks. Nine Republicans are now vying for the gavel. You launched a unity pledge for the next Republican speaker to begin. Tell us why you're launching this pledge.
8: Well, I was sitting there in the conference room uh, last Friday and uh, Jim Jordan had just given his concession speech that he was withdrawing his nomination. And I thought, we don't have a majority party If we don't vote as a majority and because of that, I thought before we do another round of voting, we need to decide, are we in the majority? Because if we are, we all have to agree to support the nominee. That doesn't mean the nominee has to get 217 votes in the conference. It means that once the nominee has been named, that person should be unanimously elected by every single Republican in the majority when we go to the floor. And I think it's important to hold people to that standard. I like the fact that eight of the nine candidates for speaker have signed the pledge. What I want now is I want those same candidates to go to their supporters and say, allow me to show the rest of the conference that I can bring diverse groups of people together, because I'm looking for somebody that can unite us.
0: The allies of the Conservative House Freedom Caucus are urging opposition. What's your message to them?
8: I think that uh, if the question is, are we going to be unified, the answer should always be yes. We're in this together. We are in this together. The American people did not elect Democrats to be in the majority. They sent a majority of Republicans. And we saw what happened when all the Democrats had a chance to vote on this. They voted to uh, create a vacancy in the chair. Um, You know, it's disappointing to hear that some of the membership doesn't think this is a good idea. What's more important to me is that when the time comes to support our nominee, that they vote for the nominee. And that's the process that I think is important that we should be prioritizing.
0: And this comes at a time when there is a lot of pressure on the House. There's the Israel-Hamas war unfolding, Ukraine, and no speaker. And are you in favor of empowering the pro temp speaker to be able to push forward legislation if there is still no speaker going forward?
8: I supported Jim Jordan, last week he, uh, for a brief time, supported the idea of giving Patrick McHenry those powers, and so did I. I think it's entirely reasonable to identify someone to immediately start having the uh, powers of the speaker so that we can consider other legislation. Uh, it would crush me if we received the aid package from the Senate and were unable to deal with it because we haven't named a speaker. We have to do the people's business. I was at home in Nebraska yesterday. I ran into uh, a lady of mature age who I could tell had a lot of anxiety and she was worrying about the fact that the House of Representatives didn't have a speaker. And she's been watching this on TV. And I thought this isn't fair to her. She should expect more from her government. She shouldn't be spent her Sunday afternoon worrying that her government doesn't have uh, one of the two uh, chambers in the bicameral, uh, a leadership post named. That's not fair to her. And so we just need to get this done and move on.
0: And on that last part, what is your message to Americans who have been watching this whole process play out and might be becoming disenchanted with House Republicans in particular? What's your message to them?
8: They need to know there are hundreds of us in the Republican majority that are working very hard to get to a place where we can name a speaker and get the House of Representatives back open. There are people like me that are calling our colleagues saying we must be unified. And you know, I think when you watch the news, you end up seeing the handful of folks that uh, have voted against our nominee on the floor. Uh, they have to remember that eight Republicans joined with every single Democrat to remove Kevin McCarthy as speaker. And we're not talking about a lot of people. But, uh, you know, I voted for Jim Jordan last week because I felt he could unite us. And there were a different subset of members that didn't feel that way. So, at the end of the day, let's vote with the majority, get this back on track, and do the people's business.
0: And on the point of unity, what qualities does a candidate need to be able to unite the party?
8: Well, and that's one of the things that's important to me about the pledge. If you uh, are a good legislative leader, and I was the speaker of the Nebraska legislature for six years, a good speaker can go up to another member and listen to their concerns, find a way to remedy their concerns, and inspire them to join the rest of us in the greater pursuit of passing bills and moving the country forward. I'm looking for somebody that has that knack and ability to walk into a room full of folks that may have an issue on a certain bill, sit down, listen, come up with some constructive ways to move forward and see if we can't find a win-win when possible uh, so that we can pass bills. That's, that's the litmus test in the, uh, in, the, in the Unity Pledge. Can you influence people to come with you and inspire them to be on a team? I think Jim Jordan had those qualities. Uh, It's unfortunate that he's not here uh, doing this again, because I'd vote for him again. But that's where we find ourselves. And I'm withholding my vote for speaker until I have the chance to see who is the best one of the nine candidates to bring people together.
0: And zooming out, what would you say to those in other countries who are saying this is an example of why democracy doesn't work and point to their, say, authoritarian governments as a better option? What would you say to them?
8: Democracy is messy, but it is the best system on Earth. And because we have three different branches of government, because we have a separate executive and judiciary and a legislative branch, we can weather this. We are strong, we are capable of defending ourselves. This is, this is going to be a blip on the radar, an unfortunate one, but it will not be the issue it is today in a month because we'll have bigger issues to deal with. America is strong and suppressing peace, people's speech torturing people for their views, uh, doing what uh, those Hamas terrorists did in Israel, that's pure evil. That's, that's folks that are tied to evil, uh, where we represent freedom. And so our system is still better any day than any other system out there. And that's why we are and have been and remain the strongest sole superpower in the world. And we have a duty to lead. And that's what we're in the process of getting back on track here.
0: Congressman Mike Flood, thank you so much for your time.
8: You bet. Have a good day. Thank you.
0: Coming up, a new report says the once popular ESG investing is dying on Wall Street. Why is this happening? And dozens loot a California 7-Eleven after a raucous street event. Data shows violent crimes in California are up as the national average goes down. Stay tuned for more after the break. Welcome back. Is the sun setting on environmental, social and governance investing, or ESG? Data shows that ESG is seeing signs of significant decline in the U.S. For details, we spoke with NTD business host Don Ma. Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us.
9: Yeah, always great to be here, Tiffany.
0: To begin, are we starting to see ESG disappear from the investing world?
9: Well, you know, Tiff, I think I can say with a degree of certainty that uh, it's showing signs of decline. I mean, at the very least, the term ESG is not as it once was. Uh, Some are even saying that the market for environmental, social, and corporate governance investing is fundamentally broken. And... Here's some data points uh, that's showing a potential decline for ESG. Uh, And I think the numbers here speak for themselves. So, the total flow of investments into US ESG funds has been zero to slightly in the negative, actually, in the first quarter of 2022, according to CNN data. Um, In the US, assets under management in ESG funds declined. $24 billion from the second quarter to the end of September. So those are just some numbers for a reference.
0: And why are we seeing this decline in ESG when a few years ago it was so popular?
9: Well, you know, when something is flawed, right, it's only a matter of time before people start to realize it and it just falls apart. Uh, The problem with ESG, first of all, is that its scoring system doesn't really work um esg scores for companies uh, actually doesn't tell you anything meaningful about the overall company it's very vague and on top of that companies can game the system in various ways to get a higher esg score even if the company is actually not that good for the environment Uh, sometimes you have uh, for example, a fracking company getting an A-plus on uh, the environment, and you have a company like Netflix getting a D-minus on uh, the environment, or you have an electric car company like Tesla getting a lower ESG score than an oil company. You know, it just doesn't make sense. Mm.
0: And how does ESG investing perform in terms of return?
9: Yeah, that, that's the biggest question here. To put it simply, ESG funds perform poorly financially. Uh, because in a journal of finance paper, University of Chicago researchers found that the highest rated funds in terms of sustainability did not outperform the lowest rated sustainability funds. And you know, besides that, let me just add another point. So another problem with EF- ESG investing is that it actually makes no difference to the environment. Uh, Some companies simply rebrand by adding words such as sustainable or ESG or green or climate to their names, but actually do nothing for the environment. So, you know, if you want to actually be environmentally responsible, you want to be a responsible investor, there's actually only one way to achieve that goal. And according to investing services and solutions company, RIA, you must invest directly in private startup companies that focus on climate related issues
0: quite fascinating well don ma thank you so much for joining us
9: yeah thank you tiffany
0: a 7-eleven was overrun by looters in sacramento county california no injuries were reported and the police are working to identify the people involved NTD's jason blair brings us that story
3: the sacramento county sheriff's office released this video on friday It shows dozens of people looting and vandalizing a 7-Eleven in Rio Linda. The incident happened on October 8th after a nearby sideshow. The police believe some of the suspects are from the San Francisco Bay Area. They're asking for tips and offering up to $1,000 for info leading to any arrests. The public can call 1-800-AA-CRIME. Not too far away in San Francisco, both the CVS and Walgreens will close stores located downtown within the coming month. Specific reasons have not been cited yet for these closures. However, Walgreens has noted retail theft and cost-cutting before with previous closings. Rite Aid also announced that it's closing 154 stores nationwide, including 34 in California. The company filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy last week all of this comes after recent data was released by the fbi it shows that violent crime in california rose by eight and a half percent from 2020 to 2022 while in the nation as a whole it dropped by three and a half percent reporting in california jason blair Entity news
0: coming up how did israel become a state we speak with israel's former chief archivist who helps trace the historical background of the jewish state China, Russia and Iran described as a new axis of evil. The publisher of a political risk journal tells us why he believes the U.S. needs to play a leading role in responding to the threat. California's governor visits Israel and Hong Kong. What is he doing on an international business trip? Stay tuned to find out. Back. if you're just joining us now here are some today's top headlines washington today pledging to deploy more forces to the middle east to halt the war's escalation this comes as the hamas terrorist group releases two more hostages both israelis former president trump distancing himself from Sidney powell just days after she pleaded guilty in the georgia election case trump said powell was never his lawyer Senator Bob Menendez pled non-guilty to acting as a foreign agent on behalf of Egypt. The New Jersey senator attended his second arraignment in connection to conspiracy and bribery charges. Twenty days after McCarthy's ousting, the House speakership is still in limbo. Nine Republicans now throwing their hat into the ring to fill the seat. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says China, Iran, and Russia pose the most significant threats to the U.S. On Fox News Sunday, the Kentucky Republican used a phrase coined by President George W. Bush following the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001.
5: This is an
2: emergency. It's an emergency that we step up and deal with this axis of evil. China, Russia. Iran.
0: So how does this new axis of evil threaten the democracies of the world, and how should the U.S. respond? We speak with a publisher of the journal Political Risk, who sees a leading role for the U.S. as the international guarantor of peace and freedom. Anders Court, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be back on the show. Thank you. To begin, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says the Israel-Hamas war is a, quote, worldwide problem, and he goes on to call China, Russia, and Iran the axis of evil, saying it's an immediate threat to the U.S. Should we be looking at these countries as connected instead of separate?
10: Absolutely. Uh, China has been supporting Russia in its war against Ukraine. Uh, China and Russia have both supported Iran. Iran supports Hamas. its attacks on Israel, Uh, unfortunately, they're all collaborating together um, for their own arguably evil purposes of attacking uh, innocent civilians and democracies. All we have—all we're waiting for now is China to jump into Taiwan uh, and start bombing that country. I mean, unfortunately, that's—the reality is that uh, countries' illiberal dictatorships like this like to attack it. the same time uh, so that it makes it more difficult for the democracies and reasonable alliances to defend
0: themselves. And on that note, what kind of threat do they pose to the U.S. when united together?
10: They are, uh, I mean, the United States has really been for decades the guarantor of international peace and freedom, uh, democracy, human rights around the world. Um, And of course, that costs a lot of money, and unfortunately, taxpayers are having to pay that. Um, but in the long run, uh, you know, we do need to find new, new sources of revenue uh, to provide global security, as we have been. Um, but it's also for our benefit uh, that we don't allow these dictators to get bigger and more powerful. If they take Taiwan, if they take Israel, if they take Ukraine, uh, they become more powerful. And in the future, 10, 20 years down the road, they can use that additional territory and power against us.
0: Mm. And now McConnell went on to note it's an emergency for the U.S. to step up and deal with this axis of evil. Is our current policy towards these countries strong enough?
10: It's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I think that we need to uh, definitely increase our economic sanctions on countries like uh, Russia and China you know, and Iran, um, we should stop negotiating for hostages. I mean we just gave basically gave Iran billions of dollars for just a couple of hostages. Um, we've uh, relieved Venezuela of its uh, of the oil embargo there uh, you know again for just a few hostages. Um, you know we can't keep funding these countries, including through the IMF, World Bank, um, most favored nation status for China in terms of trade with the United States. We just can't keep doing that and expect uh, them to to respect our values when they're trampling all over them and we just keep handing them money. It just doesn't make sense. Mm.
0: Then how does the U.S. step up, as McConnell says?
10: I think that what McConnell's looking for, of course, is, is uh, increased funding for the Ukraine war and for uh, Israel, and they're trying to combine those two into a single bill to uh, force everyone to vote yes on them. Whereas uh, some of the Republicans, um, led by people like Matt Goetz in the House, uh, do not want to pay for Ukraine but do want to pay for Israel. Um, so I think that's the the basis of the conflict right now uh, in Washington. Um, you know, yes, yes, we should be supporting. All of these democracies. But at the same time, we need to be careful about our debt. Uh, you know, the interest payments alone are getting unsustainable, unfortunately.
0: And Anders, you mentioned China. So, zooming out a bit, the Philippines is summoning the Chinese ambassador. That's after a near collision over the weekend in the South China Sea between a Chinese Coast Guard and two Philippine military vessels. What is the message here? How should we read this near miss? China is trying
10: to uh, bully the Philippines, Vietnam, other South China Sea countries um, into basically giving up the South China Sea, which is a large body of water the size of India, um, with probably trillions of dollars of oil and gas underneath it. A third of the world's shipping goes through there. Um, It's very important for Taiwan and Japan and the Philippines, obviously all of those South China Sea nations, um, and, and all countries that get trade. So, uh, you know, we can't let China do that. The South China Sea has for forever essentially been uh, used by communities throughout that area. And those also include Malaysia, Brunei, Indonesia. Um, and we just can't hand that over to China because they claim it to be theirs. So the international court has already uh, made a statement that uh invalidated China's South China Sea claims. So the United States is, is does need to get tougher on China. We've, since the 70s and 80s and 90s, you know, China has been grabbing little islands, uh, fighting a war against Vietnam to grab some islands, um, killing, you know, soldiers there from other countries, sinking ships, um, you know. So the U.S. needs to step in and really protect uh, protect those com- countries, um, and, you know, we, we, we and our allies need to do more, absolutely.
0: And expanding on that last point, how should the Philippines and the U.S. be responding to this?
10: Well, I mean, we should be, really what the Philippines would like to do is is drill for oil and gas in, in its exclusive economic zone. Um, so they should go ahead and do that and the US government and allies including Japan Australia India uh, should use their navies to protect uh, that oil and gas drilling and um, you know that 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 is the crux of the matter
0: uh, Anders Kor thank you so much for your time thank you while in Hong Kong, California's governor tells the public in a climate change talk that they'll always have a partner in California. Governor Gavin Newsom also visited Israel and is working to send humanitarian aid to Israel and Gaza. NTD's David Lamb reports.
6: California Governor Gavin Newsom visited Israel recently before heading to China. Newsom assured during his week-long trip to China that his state will always be a partner on climate issues, no matter how the U.S. presidential election turns out.
2: After I'm gone, I promise you, Democrat, or Republican, you're going to have someone that's there for the long haul on these issues, that believes foundationally these issues. I want you to know, regardless of what happens nationally, sub-nationally, You have a partner in the state of California.
6: Newsom's visit to University of Hong Kong on Monday comes as U.S.-China relations witnessed a sharp decline in recent years due to trade disputes, U.S. support for self-governing Taiwan, and other human rights concerns, among other issues. Before his China trip, he visited the Tel Aviv Saraski Medical Center in Israel on Friday, meeting with survivors, families, and others, including those from California impacted by the Israel-Hamas war. Newsom said, Despite the horror, what I saw and heard from the people of Israel was a profound sense of resilience, a commitment to community and common purpose, especially in these most difficult of times. According to Newsom's office, California is working to ship medical supplies to support humanitarian relief efforts in Israel and Gaza. David Lamb, NTD News, California.
0: How did Israel become a state? Both Jews and Arabs have connections to the land. NTD's Jack Bradley speaks with Israel's former chief archivist to explore the historical background
11: of the Jewish state. In the early 20th century, the Ottoman Empire ruled the land where Israel is now located. At that time, the area was inhabited mostly by Arabs. The Ottoman Empire was on the losing side in World War I and ceased to exist after the war. Great Britain took over the lands that are now Israel and the Palestinian territories. In the Balfour Declaration of 1917, Britain expressed support for establishing a home for the Jewish people on that land. After World War II, more and more Jews migrated to the area. In 1947, the United Nations created a plan to partition the land into Jewish and Arab states. The Jews liked the plan. The Arabs did not. When the state of Israel was officially established in 1948, the surrounding Arab countries opposed it vehemently.
3: The Jews and the Palestinians both equally have perfectly legitimate claims to the land. Ultimately, the only solution for the both of them both all of them end up with states of their own alongside
11: each other. Yaakov Lozawik is Israel's former chief archivist. He says the Jewish right to the land is rooted in history. The Jewish presence there dates back over 3,000 years. The Jewish people wrote their scriptures there. Jesus, who was a Jew, lived there. Jerusalem is the center of the Jewish world. And both the Bible and even the Quran refer to the Jewish people's ties to the land.
3: There have been Jews in this land always, perhaps with the exception of a few years after the Crusaders conquered in 1099 and murdered all the Jews and then didn't let them back in. But other than that, there have been Jews here always.
11: The surrounding Arab countries aren't convinced by this history. Many in those countries argue that in more recent history, the land was populated mostly by Arabs and that it's entirely their land. The conflicts continue to this day. Jack Bradley, NTD News.
0: Coming up, it's the two words every baseball fan wants to hear Game 7. We'll preview the finale in what's been an unpredictable ALCS when we return. Welcome back, and now for your sports news, we welcome NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, we have a Game 7 tonight in what has been an unpredictable ALCS. Now, are you still sticking with Houston, despite Max Scherzer starting for the Rangers?
2: Yes, I'm uh, going with my original pick, even though it doesn't make much sense to go against Max Scherzer. They did get to him in Game Four, after all. But this series, like you said, has been unpredictable. I mean, the road team has lost all six games. It's been full of twists. I mean, we thought Houston was done after losing the first two at home. Then we thought Texas was done after losing the next three in a row. So I'm expecting nothing nothing more than a uh, sorry, nothing less than a back and forth Game Seven with. Houston coming out on top.
0: And now game five might have had the most excitement as Adolis Garcia was hit by a pitch, resulting in a near brawl and several ejections. How do umpires determine whether it's intentional or not?
2: Yeah, it's a judgment call. This is a, a question that's never really been answered by Major League Baseball, officially anyway. Unofficially, if you did a big home run, take your time around in the bases while celebrating the entire way, then get drilled with the fastball next time up, It's usually considered intentional, which is what happened. Um, Now, Garcia did get the last laugh, though, with a big home run yesterday. Meanwhile, the Astros pitcher, he's suspended for two games, including tonight's game. Normally for Game 7, sometimes you end up emptying your bullpen, so we'll have to see if that comes into play tonight.
0: Now, moving over to the NLCS. Arizona has made this a series, winning games three and four, though their backs are against the wall today. Do you think the Phillies close it out today at home?
2: Yes, yes. Although, like you said, the Arizona has impressed me winning a couple of games, even though they're by one run each. You know, a win is a win. But the Phillies have outscored them by 15 runs a series. Ketel Marte of Arizona has been incredible. He's just one of those players who hits well under pressure. Meanwhile, the Phillies, you know, someone described them as an old old school softball team, big guys with big beards who had big home runs. But uh, they do it very well at this stage. Now, granted, they're losing 4-1 right now, but I think they go ahead and uh, win it tonight.
0: And now switching gears to the NFL, one of your favorites in the AFC, the Buffalo Bills dropped to 4-3 yesterday after a loss to New England. What do you make of them now?
2: Yeah, I'm perplexed by them. It's also a sign of the times that losing to Bill Belichick and the Patriots means your team might be struggling. You know, their, their losses have been close, and most of their wins have been blowouts. I mean, they beat the Dolphins by four touchdowns just a few weeks ago. They have had some injuries. Matt Milano is out. Um, but I think they'll get it together soon. They're going to have to because they've got a trio of games coming up against the Chiefs, Cowboys, and Eagles. So we'll know a whole lot more then. So you'll have to ask me in another month or so.
0: Well, as always, thanks for joining us, Dave. Thank you, Tiff. If you have any news, tips, or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.